Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. In this conversation, I interview Max Kordek, the co-founder and CEO of Lisk. Lisk is a platform for blockchain applications written in JavaScript. They were one of the first projects out there to ICO. We talked about what that process was like back in the day when only three other projects before them had ICO'd. We talked about what they're doing uniquely using JavaScript and helping develop the blockchain community. But a majority of the conversation was spent exploring topics outside of crypto and blockchain. We talked about the structure of society in the Western world, the growth and potentially challenge from the Eastern world, effectively distilling it down to a centralized versus decentralized approach to society and how that might be confrontational with existing means of structures, you know, particularly the federal governments and governments in the Western world. So effectively discussing how cryptocurrency and established governments are going to come to a head. We discussed interplanetary life and the influence that that may have on our global society. Overall, I very much uh, deeply appreciate Max and enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do as well. So here is Max Kordek co-founder, CEO of Lisk. Well, I'm excited to chat, Max. You are running a really exciting organization at Lisk. Maybe we'll just kick it off there to keep things simple. How did you get into this and what are you spending your day-to-days on exactly at Lisk? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, hey, Mike, pleasure to be here at Around the Coin. I spend my day-to-day operations with Lisk. I'm the CEO, co-founder of the project. So I'm kind of like the guy for everything. I take care of like all aspects you could imagine inside the company. But how I got to it was in 2016, when I joined previously another crypto startup, which failed at that time. And then together with my partner from today, we had this idea of the decentralized blockchain application platform, all written in JavaScript. And we decided to just jump on the bandwagon and uh, conduct an ICO, which was immensely successful at that time. And this is how it all started, raising 14,000 Bitcoin. And since then, just developing the product forward, which led me to where I am today, being the man for everything inside the company of over 70 people now. And when did you raise the 14,000 Bitcoin? So this was in February to March, 2016. The ICO ran for about one month. Okay. So Bitcoin probably was around a few hundred dollars. Yeah. How much of that 14,000 did you hold on to? So we 
held on to essentially everything all the time while also maintaining a certain amount in fiat. So we have a runway of a certain amount of months, always secured without having the risk of the volatility of Bitcoin. Nowadays, we still have around 1,400 Bitcoin left because, well, we had operations now up and running since seven years, which cost quite a bit of money. But thanks to the very good Bitcoin price nowadays, we still have several years of run runway left. Yeah. So to, so to put it in perspective, 14,000 Bitcoin at 20,000 each would be $280 million by today's equivalent. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Back in the day, it was around $5.8 million. 5.8, which is, which is pretty insane to think about the, the volatility of Bitcoin. But what, what's the, um, the basic pitch? You know, if you're, if you're speaking to the investors that put in those early dollars or Bitcoin, what did people get most excited about back then? And then how has it transpired into today? Yeah. So essentially back in the day, we were like the second layer one coming into existence after Ethereum. And what got people really excited about, I guess, are two things. On the one side, it is the angle of JavaScript, one of the most widely known programming languages in the world, where we wanted to capture that development target audience. And on the other side, the aspect of sidechains, which allows us to scale like a lot, lot more than other, like let's say smart contract platforms like Ethereum, because every blockchain application being developed is being developed on its own blockchain. So it's not fighting for block space with other blockchain applications. The user base is basically exclusive on its one chain. And these two aspects, I think, really made a big difference back in the day leading to people investing into our project and supporting us from then on. It took a very long time to get where we are today, but looking back, I think we really brought something new to the industry because also at that time, ICOs were not really a thing. We were like the third, fourth ICO really. And people saw that, well, a 23, 24-year-old guy like me and my partner, a bit older, but not much, were able to raise so much money that they can do that too. And this essentially kickstarted the whole ICO mania. So we not only started that back in the day and introduced like schemes like a bonus system and having like real pictures on the website of, of the team, which was at that time like not existent, but we also brought these two concepts of accessibility through JavaScript and the scalability approach of sidechains to the industry. Wow, that's very influential considering how significant ICOs were. What were the, you mentioned the pictures on the site were influential. What else do you think played a role in people's attraction, maybe to, you know, your project, but as representative of what continued to be a very large, like capital explosion in ICOs, were there other things, certainly the element of JavaScript, do you feel like there was just a ton of money in the space and this was a vehicle to, to actually put it to use through ICOs and Mm -hmm. Yeah, what's your broad takeaways from from that time period? Mm -hmm. I think like having our pictures or photos on the website is just introduced a certain amount of trust, which other people and projects replicated in, in order to mm -hmm. earn trust. But capital wasn't so much readily available at that time, but it was coming. And well, it's kind of a chicken egg situation. Was it coming because more ICOs came up? or was it already there waiting on sidelines to be invested into something 
and then ICOs were the perfect vehicle. That, of course, I don't know, but I think people wanted to support the cause blockchain, crypto, Web3, and they were ready to pay for that. They were ready to invest into new projects, trying out new things in order to bring this industry to the next level. And on top of that, well, in our case, at ICO time, we sold one LSK token for eight cents. We launched at 40 cents. So it directly had like a 5x unimaginable in the stock market. And probably this triggered also some kind of greed within the investors, causing like the big 2018 ICO hype and downfall afterwards. So I guess it's all these different factors together. Mm. And did you use any tools or was it, was it necessary to use? Like now it's a different you know, landscape, of course, the, the infrastructure is more developed. Back then, did you have to custom build anything? Or I guess, how, how did the actual mechanics of the ICO investment work for people? Mm -hmm. Please remember it's seven years ago, so it was like yeah. a different world of crypto, you know? So back in the day, yeah, we built everything custom. Like we built everything from scratch, the whole platform where you could like create an account, sign in, participate in the ICO, get an address, where you have to send your cryptocurrencies to, and then like at the very end, have like a page with an overview of how much you invested and how much NSK tokens you would get. We implemented like a kind of psychological game aspect into it because we had a maximum amount of coins, but that also means the more people invested, the less tokens they get with time. So they saw maybe today 10,000 LSK, but then more people invested. So the next day they maybe saw only 8,000 LSK. So they also continuously put in more and more money again in order to probably maintain that, that amount of LSK tokens they wished or wanted initially. And yeah, everything was built from scratch. At that time, we accepted Bitcoin. We accepted the cryptocurrency. It's with the ticker symbol XCR from the company I worked at before, just because it failed and we didn't want to let the community die. And we accepted a large number of different cryptocurrencies, but through Shapeshift, which was at that time like a kind of big player to convert one currency into another anonymously. So we implemented their API and converted that always automatically into Bitcoin. So we accepted a large number of cryptocurrencies this way, but got only Bitcoin as a result. And yeah, it was kind of funny because all the Bitcoin were then going to a Coinbase wallet, which then like after one year of creating the entity, because everything was new, nothing was established, we could finally touch at the end of 2016. So it was a lot of work, but my partner, Oliver, Oliver Beddows, co-founder of Lisk, he did it all like in one month, one and a half months, built it all out and it worked flawlessly. So it was quite an achievement, but we also worked like maniacs back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're effectively building a crowdfunding platform because you're yeah. so early, you have to do that yourself. So the, the, the crypto would come in and then you, you, you wrote code to be able to allocate tokens automatically based on those deposits. So yeah, how, how, what was the general infrastructure of the investment? Yeah. Yeah, so we're in a, a layer one, so like a new blockchain. So during the ICO, there was no blockchain running because we're going to be a new one, right? We had the test net up and running so people could see how it looks like and works. But the in-production chain was not running. Why? Because also the distribution of tokens didn't exist yet. It only existed after the ICO. So, well, it sounds ridiculous nowadays, but back in the day, at the end of the ICO, we had an Excel file 
with, I think, like 12 or 14,000 participants and how much they invested and how many LSK tokens they will get in return. And out of this Excel file, we created a Genesis block. So the first block of our new blockchain containing every single participant, their address, because they received like a long parts brace or parts word, which gives them access to their account later on and the balance then of LSK tokens. And well, this is how it worked out. We validated it against the numbers multiple times. No one had a problem. Everything seems to be 100% correct, but it's still a very like, let's say rough effort, but it was necessary. It was very early on, was the wild west. Did you take any steps to consider a security? Like, were you guys in the same room in the office and just looked at the cell file and then programmed the initial coins and, and addresses and just press go? Or what sort of security precautions did you take back then to issue the tokens? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Again, sounds ridiculous. Very early time, it was my partner and myself. That's it. I've not met my partner six until six months after in real life. We never met before. We hardly even talked via phone calls. We always just wrote at that time, shattered, you know. At that time, even we were chatting on Skype. So seven years, uh, if I talk about it, it sounds like it was 20 years ago, but that was the situation at that time. We triple-checked everything, made sure everything is correct. Later on, we did or performed several other tests also to make sure everything was like, processed correctly. But at the end of the day, there were no security measures. Like, mm -hmm. like there had to be trust into my partner and myself. And obviously after the fact, everyone saw on the blockchain the values and they could verify it themselves by checking, okay, how many Bitcoin did we receive? How many Bitcoin were in our wallets? How many uh, LSK did we give out in total? 100 million. How many Bitcoin they sent to us? And then how many lists they received? So yeah. with all that, it's transparent after the launch and they could verify it. And yeah, like I said, no one ever mentioned anything. So it seems like it was 100% spot on. In terms of the Bitcoin, so we raised the money and thanks God, we did one thing. We did a multi-signature wallet for the Bitcoin. So they were held in custody by the CEO of a kind of big crypto company, a German lawyer, and shared Oliver and myself the founders. And with that, legally, we didn't have access to the money. And with that, we also didn't have to pay taxes on it privately. But we realized, oh God, we like raised so much money. We thought we we're going to raise 50K or so. We raised 5.8 million. Is you know? that what you really thought? Your, your, your yeah. estimates were about yeah. Wow. I was, I was studying, you know, I did it because I wanted, like I, it was my yeah. hobby. I really yeah. liked the industry or back in the day, the space. But I didn't like expect it to be so successful. But because of that, we didn't have to pay taxes. And then it took us one year because we realized, okay, this is big. We need a legal entity. It took us one year to create that legal entity, which at the end is a Swiss-based nonprofit foundation working together with co-founders of Ethereum and with their original law firm to make this happen. It took like nearly a year three quarters or so to make it happen. And then we were able to transfer the money to the foundation and then start hiring in the beginning of 2017. And were you the first to, to do this aside from Ethereum? Like had the lawyers or the Swiss bankers worked with anyone else? I think we were the third, wow. third or fourth 
like Swiss-based foundation for crypto. Yeah. Wow, that's wild. And so <laughs> it's significant, I'm sure. Go down the record books. And, mm -hmm. and today, as of 2022, what's the market for ICOs? And, and generally, what's the story there between when you guys raised via ICO and today? Mm -hmm. So I think nowadays the market for ICOs is relatively dead. Uh, there's still constantly ICOs happening, but there's no hype anymore. And that means like the amount of money these ICOs are raising is not very high. After the bubble bursted in 2019, what happened was that venture capitalists entered the industry and they participated into these ICOs then afterwards. And like with that, like the naming got changed. Some called them like TGE or IDO or whatever you want to call them, or just a crowd sale. But the difference was from that point on, a significant percentage of the, of the tokens were then owned by VCs. And mm -hmm. that, in my opinion, didn't really make the whole thing then decentralized. Looking at, for example, Solana, they had like, I don't know even if they had a public sale, if then this was like so minimal, like a few percent of the total tokens only, the rest was just a private sale to their friends, families, VCs, whatsoever, you know? So this is a very unfortunate thing, in my opinion, which, well, can't be changed anymore. But I think that's a very strong aspect of Lisk that, well, back in the day, there were no VCs on board. It was all crowdfunded by real normal people. And since then, obviously, the distribution mixed like crazy and more and more normal people, but probably also professional investors jump on board. Hmm. And what do you think about the future of the ICOs? Are they, for some reason, dead in the water? Or are they just you know, sleeping as a mechanism for raising capital for decentralized projects? Yeah, I think they're not dead, but they're just not hyped anymore. They're like kind of, yeah, not so successful anymore, but they happen. Especially with the new layer one ecosystems. For example, the Lisk ecosystem, well, exists since quite a while, but the Lisk platform is going live next year. That means blockchain applications can be developed and connected to our blockchain, creating this platform, like ideal of thought. And for that, well, you need ICOs in order to be able to distribute new tokens to as many people as possible who can then stake them and secure this blockchain. So I think they're not dying. They just become less big, less hype. Less significant, maybe. What we've seen in the Cosmos ecosystem is that what projects also do is to raise funds via VCs. As I mentioned before, that this became a thing. Do maybe a public crowd sale as well, but then also just airdrop many tokens to the well, owners of, let's call it the mother token. So in Cosmos, for example, the, cost, the Atom token or in LISC, the LSK token. I've seen that many, many times as well, just to make sure that the distribution is quite nice, quite decentralized in order to be able to secure the blockchain via staking as much as possible. If we're looking, if we're looking more like towards, let's say like shares in a company or so, I think that's where tokens besides utility tokens still have a relatively big like use case. But we just see that wherever you combine crypto and the real world, regulation comes into play and makes it that. So I think in that regard, we're pretty far off anything substantial where like tokens can be used for. So yeah, to this point, they remain 
a funding vehicle and then like a security mechanism for a blockchain, but like on a, on a lesser level than before. Mm. And how do you view the, your just general perception of structuring fundraising for decentralized projects? I've seen, I've talked to founders that will build their project where they'll establish a private LLC that's registered with the state. And then that's the development team that is building the decentralized protocol. And then the protocol will have a foundation similar to like what you guys had. And the foundation manages the capital, like a treasury. And the foundation has board members that either have keys or they just have like state recognized board members. And then there's the kind of this ambitious goal either to dissolve the LLC that started the foundation and the monetary incentive is that people early on would own tokens in the project. And so the LLC becomes irrelevant over time. Some people I talk to, they say the LLC will remain forever a, a, a significant, you know, contributor in the ecosystem. Have you seen other mechanisms for getting these projects started? And ha do you have a sense for what seems to work better? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we're doing it exactly like we described. And I think it's a very good structure because like a centralized company, like an LLC can still push the hardest, can make mm -hmm. still the most significant change happen, right? If there's a founder team, if there's a real team meeting every day, working every day, eight to 10 hours, just making it happen, it will just inevitably lead to a result. So I am a big fan of that structure because it just works. We're here since six, seven years. We didn't run away. We didn't scam anyone. We're still pushing hard every day, you know. But we see, of course, alternatives popping up, most notably being the DAOs, the Decentralized Autonomous Organizations, where essentially you don't have a centralized LLC. You just say you have, well, a DAO. That means the collective of token owners, which can put up proposals. And in this proposal, they also nominate the person either an individual or a company to implement that change. But it is completely decentralized if the token distribution is decentralized itself. And that, in my opinion, makes things, makes things very slow. For example, this, you couldn't build that way. You could maybe, yeah, like fulfill like small use cases with it. For example, you could have a decentralized exchange and within that DAO, you don't define who's developing what on the core infrastructure level, but you could make some certain protocol decisions. So if you have a certain incentivization mechanism, you could maybe vote on which pools in the decks will be part of that incentivization mechanism as one example. But yeah, I, I do think they have a lot of potential, but I also think that for big, heavy projects, they're not the way to go. Yeah, it seems like there's some fundamental structure to human organizations, and maybe a study of just humans, where you 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 both risk you have you have kind of a spectrum between centralization and decentralization. And this could you could also be this in the political sense, right? You have all the power centralized in the king and queen, or completely decentralized, like in a you know, flat democracy with no representative government. I do think the United States' innovation on the Constitution was significant because they paved the middle way where they said it's a democracy in the sense that everyone has an equal vote, but we also have professional full-time representatives that carry out our desires in, in different areas. And I think that that, yeah. that kind of middle way is, is, 
probably also representative of a successful structure to, you know, crypto projects where instead of just everyone having one vote, no one being full or no one having the incentive to be full time invested in this, you have, you have, at the end of the day, you have kind of a, a distillation of low quality participators, low quality voters. These people are working full-time jobs somewhere else. You know, they're like sideline contributors. And it's really hard to make the right decisions to, to solve really complex problems when you don't have a team of people who are full-time. Like I think the idea of having full-time representatives, either in a state, you know, as like a mayor or a governor or a statesman, is is like part of the important part of that. So it's like to, to direct democracy is akin to a full DAO with no representatives. And then total centralization is akin to like a king and queen monarchy. And so the blending of the of the two pathways seem to be the most effective way forward. Does that resonate? Yeah, yeah I totally agree. Maybe a quick explanation for crypto and then going back to your point. So if we are doing smart contracts, for example, on Ethereum, it's mostly just this one entity deciding to upload a new smart contract and deciding that's, that's it. That's the new smart contract. For example, with Uniswap, and they upload it from version two to version three. In case of Lisk or Cosmos, where you develop your own blockchain on which your blockchain application runs on, it's still dependent on every validator on that blockchain to accept an update. So if you're pushing changes, you just can centrally decide it that decentralized network still has to adopt it. Same way as Ethereum or Bitcoin has to accept the networks, has to accept an update. So I think that's a very important aspect. So even though there is a centralized LLC behind, to adopt an update, a change in the network, it still had to go through that decentralized committee mm. or however you want to call it. In regards to your point, so... I think, and it's quite obvious, a centralized structure is always the most efficient. And that's why nearly all structures in the world started kind of centralized. You had one village, kind of centralized. You had one king, centralized. You had a church, centralized. So all kinds of different powers were always centralized. And then the more civilization advanced, the more room became free to open up and make it less efficient, kinder, but then other values play in like being more fair or giving more voices to the people, to everyone. And yeah, it was kinder an innovation of the United States of America uh, or other, or in the old uh, times of the Greeks to introduce democracy. But then I think at a certain point it shifts because now you're having representatives or a big majority of bystanders who have not the intellectual knowledge to actually make certain decisions. So it, it shifts towards becoming more centralized again, probably also because of greed, people want more power. So I have actually quite dark, like future in my head in that regard, where like everything tends to become more and more centralized. So all the companies, they are monopolizing or gonna monopolize certain areas like Facebook, TikTok, Apple, Google, they're going to build out the monopolies, you know. Same with like certain jurisdictions or countries, they are holding on to their kind of monopoly. In the States, you have basically only two relevant parties. In Germany, it becomes less and less as well, you know. So I foresee a future of being, of 
becoming more and more centralized again. And I think that's why I really like crypto because it acts kind of as a counterpart, like a, a grassroots revolution of people which see that and want to make the world more decentralized again. Because also money is so centralized. Few people have control over how much we print, about what the inflation is going to look like. And I don't think that this is, well, fair anymore. You know, I think people are sick of that and it needs more neutral, more decentralized money. Mm. In the last 10 years, over $100 billion worth of crypto has been lost or stolen, specifically because of poor key management scams and hackers. Forget not your keys, not your crypto. Software and hardware wallets have both the same vulnerability that a single private key can be lost hacked or simply just misplaced my new sponsor the zengo crypto wallet is a total game changer bringing wallet security to a whole new level you have to check out zengo an on-chain crypto wallet with no private key vulnerability leveraging advanced cryptography called mpc which is just until now only been available to multi-billion dollar institutions so zengo most secure Web3 wallet is the best place to keep your crypto, NFTs, and assets secured. It's also fully recoverable using their biometric recovery system, and it's also just beautiful. Get started at Zengo.com and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's Zengo.com, code ATC for $20 back on your purchase of $200 or more. Yeah. You sparked so many good ideas. Yeah. Where do I want to take this? So what do you think is the future intersectionality? How does the traditional establishment, like the United States federal government, the, the German government, like we have these, you know, large countries that have centralized power, that, that power seems to be coming increasingly centralized. Like the federal government in the United States seems to be getting more powerful, not less powerful. And then the rise of cryptocurrency prevents, presents another pathway for organizing human beings and, and voting on issues that matter. How do you see these two structures of organization colliding in, say, you know, 100 years when the dust settles? How does this transpire? Is there necessarily physical conflict through you know, wars to figure out which way is better? I mean, that has been the traditional way that human beings figure out you know, which is right as we fight over it. Is that, is there, is there another pathway that you foresee as being most probabilistic or how do you see the interest, how do you see this intersection mm. happening? Yeah, I am not too positive. I think about the future here. I think like all centralized structures, they become or became greedy and they want to keep the power. They don't want to give it up. And in crypto, we see it already. It's being regulated to death, like in Europe. In the European Union, you have the Mika regulations, which introduce like hundreds of pages of how to behave and what to do, what not to do, or how to do certain things, which complicates everything. Like getting certain licenses, which takes years and so much money to get, you know, it prevents the normal people to participate in that race again, even though crypto as a core idea had it that everyone can participate in it. Same as in the United States, I think now what? Now there was a bill proposed or so where algorithmic stable coins should be forbidden for two or two and a half years period because of the Terra Luna crash. So they're fighting against it. And some people say we are in a money war, a digital money war, 
already. I mean, we see with Russia and Ukraine that the physical war still exists. I mean, the media were largely ignoring already the Iran-Iraq war, but now it's back, kind of, you know, for Western civilizations or nearly for the whole whole world. So, yeah, it's, it's difficult. I think we are kind of in a war already in the world. It's kind of pessimistic. A war, of course, between West and East, but also just a digital money war in the governments trying to preserve their power. And money just means power, so they're trying to preserve their money. China introducing digital yuan, America, or like the states, experimenting with that. The EU saying that the euro is already digital, but also exploring these CBDCs, these central bank digital currencies. So, yeah, I think the crypto industry will have a very hard future. And that's where it's very good to be established now already, because, yeah, in in the future, it's just going to become harder to bring in innovation. And that's where venture capitalists are actually then necessary, because they can provide the founders with the necessary legal expertise and money to still bring something new to the industry. But the normal guy like what, or who was me like seven years ago will have no chance anymore. Yeah. Well, a couple of thoughts on this. I think that this seems to be something that's bubbling up as a, like a, almost an evolution of human organization, something that it's not anyone individually that is doing, but sort of like society as a whole, like human beings are doing this where we're reorganizing the methods of organization itself using the different tools that we have available, like the, the really primarily the central, the decentralization tooling and that, that tooling upheaves, it it threatens to upheave a lot of the existing centralized, centralized powers. And traditionally that has been resolved to physical conflict. Now, I think the advantage of the decentralization is that, like Team BTC, we'll call it, is that there you could almost you could almost have this fight be like the United States pull out. Let me back up a second. The United States pulled out of Iraq without a victory, right? The United States had all the guns and all the money and all the everything, but it still chalked up an L on that on that interaction, that fight. And that's because I think largely the the people there were so deeply entrenched and they were so decentralized that there wasn't any place to hit. Like, you know, old school, if we had a disagreement between this, right, countries would line up in a war, right, on either side, and then they'd have their horses and cavalry and guns, they'd point them, they'd all shoot, they'd reload their weapons. And so I think if you if you start from this this means of conflict and then work your way forward. What's happening is there's more sophisticated means of combat, and you could almost look at combat as dispute mediation, and there's different tactical advantages you can have. So as powers become super powerful in the centralization of their weapons, right? We have tanks, we have bombs, nuclear bombs. This is the most kind of centralized means of power there is, but it comes at a vulnerability in that you can't stop the grassroots efforts. Like Vietnam, the United States largely chalked up an L on Vietnam because they were so decentralized. Same thing with Afghanistan. And I think the same thing here. It's like if there is an actual, if we're reviewing this as a conflict emerging between decentralized and centralized, like decentralized has a major advantage in that, yes, you can, the government can come to your house. They can, you know, with guns, threaten you, take your private keys. 
but they can't do that to everybody. It is just not possible. They don't have the financial and practical means to do so. So I think this kind of like, how do you fight a colony of ants, right? You can't, you know, mm -hmm. shoot each one. You, you, you like, so I think this, it, there has to be kind of, in order for team decentralization to evolve as victorious, which is something I think that is beneficial for human beings as a whole to go through this evolutionary process, there has to be kind of a dethroning, ideally as peaceful as possible of the existing establishments. And I, I kind of view this as like, this is the new, this is the front, right? This is like, how does the decentralized team kind of pose peaceful and as much cooperative transitions of power as possible? And it's like, it's, it's going to become a reality very soon. You know, it's already a reality, right? But, and, and both sides feel very just in their actions. I'll pause there. I know I keep going, but tell me your reaction. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you said something beautiful that the U.S. had many, like, losing battles because of decentralization. And that clearly shows that we have a big chance here with crypto to win at the end, you know, because it, historically this was the reason that the biggest countries in the world have failed. So I think we have a realistic chance and we need that decentralization aspect of money. It's just very difficult to maintain, but that's why the most intelligent people in the world are in the crypto industry and working really, really hard to make a dent, you know? It's just not the same anymore as like seven years ago when I started in terms of accessibility and mm -hmm. get, getting into it. But I don't think that it necessarily has to be like that because projects already exist and everyone can join these projects which already establish themselves, like Ethereum, Cosmos, Lisk, and many, many others. So I think even though the future is looking kind of grim in many regards, humanity as a whole has a very big chance here to at least not get the aspect of money controlled by one country, but introduce for the first time ever something truly global. And I think that alone is a very powerful thought with like increasing communication between people, uh, even though some nations are trying to shut that off or shut that down. Uh, I think most recent examples from being Iran or China, I still think that humanity is more connected than ever before, of course. And that's where, well, this democrat or this, this decentralization becomes more powerful because people can coordinate and organize themselves much, much better than ever before, where before physical wars could be held. Now, the brutalism of those can be communicated to the world and every, like a mob, everyone's against that. You know, no one wants a physical war. So that's where, well, Russia or Ukraine is quite surprising, but I think that's where more and more wars will go digital with the money war being the biggest probably in existence, I can imagine. But yeah, very interesting thought experiments. Really curious to see where it goes. Even though I have a, I foresee a dark future, I'm very optimistic in general in terms of crypto. And I still think we have a very big chance to make a difference. So that's why I'm still here. That's why I'm still hustling, trying to make a difference. Yeah. Yes. It seems like the, the, the advantage of the, the decentralized, like team decentralization is that you are really an impossible target to, to hit. You know, you could take out people individually, but that just, you can't take out the network. Like, how do you shut down Bitcoin? You, you'd like literally have to, China couldn't do it. I mean, China tried and failed. So I think that resiliency is the strength 
that will hopefully carry human beings fur further along in our evolution. And I think my thoughts on this is like the, you want to, you want to make it so that it's just impractical for centralized governments to shut down the network. And ideally you want to build strength as quietly as possible and not attack the ego of the centralized governments. Like one thing I look at, you know, the Queen Elizabeth died recently and the, the English monarchy, that king and queen system that exists, it's very much performative, right? It's like, there's not a lot of actual in political influence they have, but there's still a lot of respect paid to that. And I think if anything, there can be a lesson that's drawn from that, which is when the structures of power change in humanity, which seem to happen every you know, hundred or couple hundred years, then one of the ways to minimize suffering in war and conflict is to preserve the integrity and the respect of the 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 transitioning method of power so it's like don't don't seek to destroy seek to just transition so it's like i i almost can see a, a lesson here which is honor the past structures of power but just covertly move all influence so i would think that the key philosophical principle to uphold in societies and particularly in the western world is the power to exit the right to exit should be just as, as key as like a right to vote or a right to freedom of speech, which is you have the ability to leave a network. And, you know, that's, it's obvious in, in crypto land, but, you know, to leave a country to vote with your feet is, you know, arguably the, the greatest thing that the United States did with having states as each having their own power. So I think it's, it's kind of covertly removing power from centralization from the federal governments and also recognizing them as still being worthy of our praise and respect in the same way the like we, we look at, you know, the UK and the king and queen is like no actual power, but still a lot of respect. And so I think that mm -hmm. that kind that kind of is a way to as peacefully as possible transition power globally, at least in the West. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the past has to be honored. Very important that, well, certain opinions are not being attacked and uh, people becoming upset because of that. It has to be smooth. Our conversation actually reminds me a little bit about one of the leading, let's call him, philosophers in the crypto Twitter space, Balaji. He published a book recently. I think it's called Network State. Mm -hmm. And it talks about how networks become like states, states in, in sense of like countries. I have not read the book yet. It's at home, but too much to do recently. It was also quite recently that he published it. But I think he talks about the idea that essentially decentralized networks like Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc., become their own states, their own countries, and that communities are being formed on a global scale without having like borders in mind. It's more about, let's say, like a collective interest into the same topic or a collective idea or vision or dream for the future. And I think that's very interesting and shows that, well, countries actually do lose a little bit their power because back in the day, everyone was like very proud. I am citizen of that country. Nowadays, really, it doesn't really matter because here in Berlin, where I'm currently living in, you find every nation mm. and it doesn't really, it doesn't matter anymore, you know? We're all just humans and we need still somehow a construct under which we can unite. And these are, I think, going forward, communities, digital communities. And that's where I think then these kind of network states can become very 
real and very powerful, maybe even more powerful than physical countries. So it's certainly a very interesting idea where then what I touched upon before also DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations can play a role or crypto can play a role because you can make decentralized decisions. You can have decentralized money. Everything can be decentralized because you suddenly don't have this one country which makes all the decisions because it's truly decentralized, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've, 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 I think Balaji is a really good reference. I followed a lot of his stuff. He's been very active on podcasting recently. I think, I think the, the key catalyst here will be the influence of China. You know, China's maybe already, but seems to be on par with the global influence, the global power of the United States. They seem to be on a just strong upward trend and heavily taking the centralized approach. So that puts a tremendous amount of influence and pressure on the Western world to take a different tact. Because clearly that like every individual country is just not going to present, you know, any significant economic challenge to China. So I think taking like, you know, taking the, the, the Wu way, right. The, the, the path of least resistance would be adopting this principle of decentralization like this for, for the same reason that the United States failed in Afghanistan and Vietnam is the same reason, the same advantage that the West could have collectively of building an ethos of decentralization against kind of the centralized China, which to me feels like really the only path forward because I don't see any country. I mean, the United States is the only one, you know, uh, on par with China's superpower. And I don't think, I don't see India rallying to get anywhere close to that. So it's like, you know, take, take, take the advantage you have in the decentralized construct that we have in the West and use that to the advantage which hopefully, you know, sparks as minimal conflict as possible, because it seems to be that whenever there's massive superpowers, they fight it out to determine who's more powerful. But like decentralization does have a hugely compelling structure of organization in that it minimizes the head-to-head conflict between two countries. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I totally agree. I, I, would, like, I would say only one sentence to that. I think it's the European Union's last chance to embrace decentralization. Yeah. Else, I don't think that there is a big future ahead for it. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. How do you feel about the EU, generally speaking? I know uh, England, uh, UK recently, the last couple of years pulled out with Brexit. Do you feel that it's a, you know, I'm I'm quite detached from it. Most people listening, I think, are in the US and fairly detached from the day-to-day practicality of the influence of, of the EU. Do you feel it's run its course, that it has a lot of opportunities still yet to, to go? Like, how does that look? So, well, my personal view, personal view, I think, of course, it was a necessity for Europe to create a union because else they would on a global scale just not matter anymore and wouldn't have a say in any global matter. If we're looking at China and America, like the United States, I think China is already far and beyond 
um, the powers of the states. It's uh, if if you visit, it, you will you just realize they're like 10, 20 years ahead uh, in comparison to the United States. But like, well, I think the European Union is what the world needs on a global scale. We need just one union, one world, humanity. We all need to get together. I, I know it's a pipe dream. It will never happen, but that's, I think, the ideal scenario where we just unite under one collective as humans, uh, destroy the thought of nations. And yeah, I think that would see many, many benefits uh, for, for us as, let's say, in becoming a multiplanetary species. But just doing it in, in Europe as a European Union, well, led to the fact that a few strong countries are carrying a few very weak countries and making it very imbalanced. And I think this will be the reason that this whole construct is breaking down. I don't think that the European Union will survive in its current form for much longer, let's say 10 years, maybe if even for that, it's just too fragile, too many weak players, too few strong players in it, even though right now everyone is having pro problems and troubles. I like the idea, but I think it has no big future. And do you see it just completely dissolving and going back to individual country influences? No, I don't think so. I think it will maybe break down into like, let's say a smaller union mm -hmm. with more strong players. But on the other side, this is also not very realistic because that would put these politicians on the spot, you know, and who knows if, if anyone does it. So maybe what you would also see is that the stronger countries are stepping out of it, like, like Great Britain did, and the weaker countries stay in it because they have no other choice. So you would maybe see France, so you would see the Netherlands, Germany, Poland being like standing on their own feet and all the other countries would still be in the EU. That could be a scenario, but I really don't know. Mm. It's not my expertise. Yeah. Do you feel generally the sentiment in Germany is that there's a desire to dissolve the the union? So Germany is a very difficult case. I think Germans always complain about politics, always. Nothing they do seems to be good, you yeah. know, and there seems to be this idea that a politician is a very, very like bad actor, like a very, like always does it on purpose, does everything on purpose wrong and is stupid and whatsoever. But at the end of the day, politicians are just normal human beings like you and me. And they just try their best. They have an ambition to make the world a better place. I fully believe so. It's just very difficult to lead a country or a collective of countries. So I think Germans are probably very against or increasingly turning very against their own country, their own government, because they just see that so many efforts are failing. Like now it's winter time, gas and energy prices are soaring. They are becoming more and more expensive. Many of the lower um, level society can't pay their bills anymore. Uh, I myself, I'm supporting my father and my sister, uh, just that they have the bare minimum, you know? So it's kind of like becoming increasingly tough for normal, normal people to just survive in what seems to be one of the richest countries in the world, but it's just not, you don't see it. If even the internet is slow, you know? So. Yeah, I see more problems coming up and more, more drama coming from the society towards the government mm. in the coming years.
And and what influence do you feel either crypto as an industry, maybe decentralization as an industry, however you want to draw the lines there. And then if if you feel called to answer this more specifically to list, but what influence do does this do these organizations or organizational structures have to play into the the global drama in your view? Is there I mean Yeah. yeah. So like, like I said, I believe that everything started centralized, turned decentralized, but because of efficiency, it becomes centralized again. Mm. So these monopolies are being formed. And, well, I just said that society becomes enraged with the governments and crypto now offers the society to essentially disrupt governments but also these monopolies I mentioned before, like let's say of big tech companies. And well, that kind of gives people hope again and kind of make them dream and let them believe that, hey, here's a real chance where I can maybe bring power back to the people. Mm. And this is what crypto is all about. So I see really crypto as like the, the golden future of the world, which we can somehow use to bring back that decentralization, to make the world more fair again. And yeah, just to let people live a better life again. It's just one part of the puzzle, but I think a very important one. Mm. Yeah, a lot of identity is formed either individually or collectively in relationship to the other. And we live in a world where we just launched a new satellite system into orbit that is you know going to explore the depths of the of the universe at least our solar system to a great degree i th- i would love to see in my lifetime us discover other intelligent life on other planets it seems statistically like given the you know just picture every piece of sand on every beach in the world is a solar system like that's that's the reality of the space that we're living in and it would seem to me that it's more akin to like a brain where the whole thing is just firing together and we're just not quite networked into that situation yet. It might be some critical mass of technological development for us to, you know, connect to that API, so to speak. How, how do you, what are your, what are your thoughts on us as a planet either, you know, coming into contact with other complex life forms? Do you, you know, some people would say that they're already here. Some people would say they're, it's unlikely that anything else exists. Do you have a, just an intuition about the reality there? Mm-hmm. I mean, it can only be an intuition, mm-hmm. interesting conversation shift. So I think there's definitely life out there. I believe they're not on the planet already. I believe that technology, but maybe even the basic laws of physics prevent us of discovering them either or i hope it's technology and not the laws of physics because i do hope as you that in my lifetime i still learn about the fact that not even like intelligent but could be the most dumb protein or whatever or like a bacteria virus whatever it is on a different on a foreign planet that we discover it still so I think it's out there. I, I believe it's too far out for us to discover it yet. I really hope we discover it. And if we do, I think it will be a monumental shift to society because then suddenly we are, we are indeed all human. And I hope that this will put it quite clearly into everyone's mind minds that, well, we are one species 
and we need to um, yeah hold together. Um, even though I, of course, do hope that then if it's an intelligent species, that they are friendly. Mm. So very interesting thought experiment. I mean, that's the whole story with Avatar, mm -hmm. like the modern day Pocahontas, right? And uh, looking forward to the second part they're coming end of this year. So it's a very interesting story. Yeah. 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 I have yeah. a, I mean, I, I'm certainly, for me, the dust is not settled here, but it, it is precarious that the United States government through the military published a, like an official press briefing saying that they have unidentified objects, like uh, vehicles flying over the world that they've identified. They, they haven't been able to like tie them down, but they, the, the pattern of flight behavior is absurd. It's like, you know, there's just fly 500 miles an hour in one direction and stop on a dime and turn like and make a, make a right angle turn in a different direction. And they've identified these things as hovering over the nuclear sites across the world. So that's another thing that was like, what, what the hell is going on here? And it's, it, it's no. like, there's a few things, you know, like part of the way I, I like to make sense of the world is you develop patterns of how people behave, technology behaves, and then you can start to see the trend and then you feel more confident working on something like blockchain in particular is an example of that. And then there's also little, little like, like splinters in that, you know, you'll, you'll see something that you're just, it conflicts with your whole structure of reality. You know, if you believed in the theory of, you know, Newtonian physics, and then you discover quantum physics in the early days, that must've been like mind blowing. You know, you have this construct of reality and then this thing just screws it all up. And I kind of think like entanglement, quantum entanglement, where you have one particle here and then the other particle is another part of the universe and they instantly interact. It's like maybe travel across the universe isn't, it doesn't need to be like on a spaceship, Elon Musk style. Maybe it's, you know, there's some technology yet to be discovered that makes the whole traveling part of it much more feasible. Like, you know, who would have pictured planes in the 1500s? So I, that's my yeah. optimistic take on it. No, no, certainly, certainly. I mean, there are all kinds of different ways how to make sense of some things or how to predict the future. I mean, you mentioned Elon Musk. Uh, I think it's future or his predictions for the future are always along the lines of what's the most ridiculous and hilarious outcome. And that will happen. Mm -hmm. you know? I think more, more so that, well, for example, in the case of your UFO, uh, which suddenly makes like a, a 90 degree turn at 500 miles an hour, I always think about just some reasonable explanations. Mm -hmm. For example, it's just a measurement mistake or a device error. Or it's, it is China being 10 years ahead mm -hmm. and already having some kind of like, like devices we don't mm -hmm. even know about, or because it was over like radioactive sites or whatever, that there are certain physical laws we don't know yet. And this causes our devices to malfunction whatsoever. I always try to seek the most realistic and probable solution, you know? which doesn't sound too crazy, even though I really enjoy <laughs> like one or two conspiracy theories. But in terms of like life outside Earth and uh, technology not invented yet and imagining planes in the 1500s, well, there are many theories, right? Like for example, that our brain is just a receptor of a consciousness, like a, like a receiver of a consciousness far out somewhere else. And that we just receive the consciousness 
and live the life here. But while our, let's call it soul or consciousness, it's really not here with us. It's somewhere else. And if we die, it's being broadcasted to another shell. Mm. So, I mean, there are many theories like that, and they might stem from people taking too, too many substances or whatsoever, but it's still a very interesting thought experiment. And well, might be because we are still not understanding everything in this world, right? So yeah, very interesting mm. thought experiment. Difficult to say, of course, what's true, what's wrong. My, my, my quick reaction to that on a, like a heuristic level is, if there's an area of unexplored terrain, we'll call it, it could be intellectual terrain, whatever it is, and there's already kind of a consensus on what that unexplored terrain is, that probably means that it's wrong, or at least at a minimum, that it's not encompassing of the full picture of reality. In the same way, like Newtonian mm -hmm. physics was right, but it was also not fully encompassing quantum physics. And so I, I tend to yeah. think like the psychedelic research that's being done, the ideas of entanglement, the ideas of, you know, but what you're referring to as panpsychism as like consciousness exists outside there and we're the receptor for it. There's, you can kind of intuitively sense, particularly in the Western world, this like reaction of like, oh, that's just, that's just some silly stuff. Like that's, we already know, like there's, there's an implicit religion that we carry into our, our perception of reality. And I think that that that's exactly the kind of implicit assumption that is correct, but not complete. And I mean, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm super excited to see where the psychedelic research goes because it might, it might unveil a deeper level of sophistication that's actually going on that doesn't conflict with what we know to be true today, but it just expands upon it in a, in a deeper level, which there's something about that that's so exciting and, uh, and interesting. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And it's always also just something people only understand if they've experienced it themselves and we see the world becoming more open to stuff like that. So yeah, I'm also super excited in that regard. Generally, like in all kinds of development we are involved in as a, as a, as a society, I think we still have a lot stuff to discover. I mean, at the end of the day, what we don't know, like there's always infinitively more what we don't know than what we know. So that just opens up so many new discoveries for the future, which we don't even think about. So I don't think that there are certain limitations. I mean, at the end of the day, the reality is just, you could imagine kind of like a program and this program could be rewritten. We just don't know how. So you could teleport yourself anywhere in the galaxy. I don't think that this is something unrealistic. It's just that the rules, the sheet code mm. essentially for that was not written yet. So yeah, I think that the options are limitless, but we as humans have to see that we survive as a civilization and not destroy ourselves. I think we are our own biggest enemy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Simultaneously biggest enemy and, and biggest hope. And I, I think that yeah. the calibration that I, I asked myself and that I, I think is a good one is like, do you feel you're on the right side of history? Because that is like, it's like swimming down river as opposed to swimming up river. And, you know, it, part of that is just like, let, if you're working in some old system, some old bureaucratic system of some, you know, industry, some old insurance company, whatever it is. And it's like, you're, you're feeling stuck in the world. It's like, there is a path out of that. There is, there is, there, there, I've, this is my experience in life is that there is a resistance period with the change. And then there's like, oh, a whole new frontier that opens up. 
And I think that's kind of the the optimistic take on how to make career transitions. But I think I've heard the stat recently that there's about 10,000 developers in crypto total, which is astronomically small relative to the total number of, of developers on the internet. It's like, I think like a, fr- a fraction of a percent. So it's like, there's still so much space yet to, to excavate, which is, you know, I find super exciting to be on the early frontiers of that. Yeah, no, definitely. I think AI has this moment right now. Mm. And as you mentioned, crypto really doesn't have many developers in its industry right now. And that's where Liz, my company, is also taking that angle, focusing on JavaScript. There are like 20 million developers who are familiar with JavaScript, you know, and we are trying to pull them into the crypto industry so that they can, well, bring new use cases, bring innovation do things I have no clue about. And that's what we're all about, you know, making crypto accessible for developers, for these 20 million JavaScript developers to give them the tools so they can build their own blockchains, their own blockchain applications, but then also accessible to the user to yeah, give them these applications which are being developed into their hands and benefiting from it in their real life. Yeah. I mean, the reality is that, I mean, I, I after I sold my last company, there, we had about 20 developers down in Argentina and the acquirer didn't want to hire people outside the US. So I spun up this business called Otter Labs and we, we basically, mm-hmm. it exploded after COVID and every company went remote. And it, we're connecting people down in South America. It's people mostly in the States that are hiring. And the explosion of remote work is just like, gotta be one of the most influential patterns and trends of our lifetime. And the biggest blocker in hiring people for decentralized projects is that the the frameworks are just not familiar. Like Solidity is not something that many people have experience with. <clears throat> so there's just a massive shortage of talent. And I mean, to, to credit what you're pursuing, JavaScript is, I don't know if it's the most popular, but it, it feels like the most popular web technology out there. And so how many millions of developers are familiar with JavaScript and you know, just say, instead of learning a new language, you know, to, to, to contribute to this new decentralization, like just, <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I find what you're doing, the, the principle of what you're doing, which is taking the language that people know and then allowing them to build in a new world using that existing language is like, it's massive. I mean, mm-hmm. like one thought to that, I don't even think it's about the language itself. Yes, we picked the most easy, most accessible one, most widely known one, but it's about the idea or the, 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 the thought that A, there are many people familiar with that programming language and B, it has the reputation of being accessible because then we are softening the entry into the world of crypto. Mm. People are often very afraid of new things. But here we bring something very accessible, very familiar. And yes, they could learn a new language, no problem. But just by being JavaScript, I think they are more open to giving it a chance. And maybe from from our project, they're jumping to another project because it suits their needs better. But we onboarded them. We brought them into the industry because we delivered or gave them something familiar, which they don't have to be afraid of. And I think that's a very powerful idea and I can't wait to see where we are in a few years with, well, this, this idea, this, uh, yeah. this foundation of our project. Yeah. 
Yeah, it makes so much sense, man. It just feels like similar to languages, right? You you speak German, you may even speak other languages, but you speak English and having a common protocol for communication, English, you know, in the Western world is that protocol. And it's just very, very effective. JavaScript in the world of web development is that is that protocol, is that language. And so porting that over to the world, the world of blockchain is like, it's almost so obvious that I mean, you guys were in the right place at the right time, but it's it's such a compelling concept to just say, use the language you're already familiar, build in this new world. Like, that's the tagline. And I love what you guys are working on, man. Thanks. Max, are you writing or tweeting personally that you want to throw out there? Or, or yeah. yeah. So I'm tweeting under the tag Max Cordek. So that's my profile name. I have a YouTube channel, but recently I was a bit too busy to to manage that, but we'll get back to it beginning of next year. That's also uh, Max Cordic or Max Cordic HQ. It's all under my name, very easily to spot. The most important Twitter uh, handle, though, is Lisk HQ. It's our project's Twitter handle. There you get all the information you need. And I, I thought, or I think it's a very interesting conversation we had because well, you're probably familiar with the golden cycle or circle that you don't start with the what, you start with the why. And we pretty intensively discussed the why, why mm-hmm. crypto. And I think it gives a very good picture into why crypto is necessary for this world. And with Lisk just being one of the players in it, trying to make it more accessible to developers and to users, giving them whatever they need to benefit from this technology. Yeah, I think it's a very... It was a very good session here to make people understand why we're doing this. Yeah, I enjoyed it very much. Thank you so much, Max, for your time and talk soon. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You know, for centuries, the ultra wealthy have been putting their money where their mouths are by investing in fine wine. And now with Vint, you can do that too. At Vint, we offer SEC qualified investment opportunities of fine wine and spirits curated by our experts with portfolio managers. With Vint, you can invest and diversify into the most sought after assets that have a history of price appreciation. Learn more at VINT.co. For full investment disclosure information and more, visit VINT.co.